The um, bulletin title this morning, I don't know if you saw that, um, Wine, Women, and Weed, and the Things I Should Give Up. I don't know who came up with that title. I don't know. I just, I'm not sure where, where that came from, worded just the way that it is. But it brought you out this morning, didn't it? Yeah, what is the pastor going to say? Wine, women, and weed, and the things I should give up. What exactly do I mean by that? Well, uh, there are perhaps things that we should give up or could give up, and they might not be the things that you're thinking. But I'll try to speak to some of these things along the way as well, because you're interested in those things. But um, let me give you another, just one more example of this giving up our rights. Here in Washington State, when I was driving to church this morning, I came to a red light, and the light was red, and I went anyway. (laughs) <laughs> Freedom, right? <laughs> Is there a state patrol in the room? <laughs> no, no, no. It was a red light, but it was a right-hand turn. Yeah, yeah. You can do that. In Washington State, you can, t- you can stop and then go on a red light. You can go right on red. It's a free right on red. Except there are some times, aren't there? There are sometimes, there are some intersections where it is posted, no right on red. That means you've got to stay there and wait for the light to change before you take your right-hand turn, if it's a red light, okay? So there are some intersections where that right that we normally have, we need to give up that right. We need to not exercise that right, and there's some reason. It might not even be clearly known to us, but there's something about this intersection. There's something about other traffic patterns around us that make it better not to take that right-hand turn on red at that intersection. So if it's posted, a right that you normally have, you give up. And you do that all the time when you drive, right? I hope that you do that. I hope that you're willing to yield that right at, at occasions. And some of your cars show the signs of otherwise, but it's another story. So the, the passages that are before us today are, are addressing a, a question that arises. Now, it's a particular cultural question that most of you, I would guess, don't struggle with. The question that's being raised here is, as a Christian, knowing what I do about God, knowing what I know about, about the reality of God, and that these false gods are not really gods at all, and that an idol made out of stone can't do anything for me, then even things in relating to the worship of those false gods are, don't really matter. They don't impact me. I don't need to be afraid of that. And so, in the city of Corinth, in the first century, and this was common other places as well, they would have, in these various temples of false gods with idols, they would have meat that was offered to the idols. In fact, and if there was a big social event, you would, you would take a cow or several cows, you would dedicate those, devote those, those, those beasts to the idol, the false god, whatever it was, and then you would, you would slaughter them, and then certain bits were, 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 were left at the temple. The rest of the meat was good to eat. And whatever meat wasn't used, sometimes people would sort of double dip. They would devote their, their beast to the idol, but then they would take the meat and they would sell it in the marketplace. 
Most of the meat was uh, double benefited that way. The person thought they would get benefit from the idol they devoted it to. They thought they would get benefit from selling the meat, of course, at the market. So could you, well, if I go to one of those feasts associated with a temple, am I participating in idol worship? How many people have had to turn down a dinner invitation because it was going to involve idol worship? It doesn't necessarily happen a lot, does it? But... Um, what about, um, well, not, okay, I'm not going to go to t- idol temples. What about meat that was sold in the meat market? And yet, maybe that meat, too, had been already dedicated in an idol temple first. That was a problem the first, first century Christians had to deal with. Now, you're thinking, well, what does that have to do with us today? Well, Paul answers the question for them, but he answers it in a way that helps us in similar questions, other questions that relate to this issue of, I can, there are many things that I can do. There are many things that are permissible. But should I do those things? Things that I have a right to do, should I do? Or should I willingly give up my rights? Is there something that I have a right to, like a right on red, Like choosing what I want to wear, what I want to eat, where I want to go. Should I at times willingly give up those rights for the sake of others and for a higher purpose that's beyond my own enjoyment and indulgence? And that's how he answers that question. So we're going to make three moves. We're going to be surveying through three chapters, chapter 8, 9, and 10 in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you want to turn to chapter 8, we'll start there. If you're using a pew Bible to follow along, then we're on page um, 956. Uh, If you brought your own Bible, I encourage that because then you can circle something, you can make a note. I appreciate it if you didn't circle and make notes in the pew Bibles, but uh, maybe somebody else will benefit from that. But I encourage you to bring your own Bible, follow along, and you'll find that passage again the next time you open. But uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll begin at verse 1, uh, this, this, this opening section, he first of all says, don't let your rights wrong others. Don't be willing to sacrifice, there's a play on the meat word, isn't it? To be willing to sacrifice your rights for a brother or sister in Christ's benefit. How will, if you know you can eat meat because the idol's nothing, But how will that affect somebody else whose faith is not as strong as yours? Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll start in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. None of us know everything. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. See, these are the reasons why people could go ahead and eat meat that had been sacrificed to idol because, well, there's only one God. The idol has no real existence. So there's no harm in eating something that was ignorantly by somebody else devoted to an idol because I don't believe in that idol. I know there is only one true God. For although there may be many so-called gods, verse 5, in heaven and on earth, and indeed there are many so-called gods and many lords, people worship different things and names and entities all around the world, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Okay, so 
we know many things, Paul says. And, and the Corinthians were saying, well, we know this is true, so can't we just eat freely of, of the meat that was in the temple? And Paul says, well, okay, we know these things, but be careful about knowledge. Knowledge is not for its own sake. Knowledge is to support love. Knowledge is to inform and direct our act and living out love. So then, he said, he said, knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. Seek to build up one another. With what we know today, they would say it this way. People have made strictures about, you know, don't do this, don't do that. But what we know today, your conservative, simplistic view is outdated. We know more than that today. And you'll hear that in a lot of cultural discussions. Knowledge puffs up, but, but love builds up. Knowledge is secondary, love is primary. This is not to say that knowledge is not significant. Knowledge is necessary. How do I know how to love? How do I know what direction to exercise my love in without knowledge? Knowledge about God who himself is love. So knowledge is not unimportant. People will read this passage and say, you see, knowledge isn't a big deal. It's all about just loving God. Who's God? What's he like? How do I love him? What does God desire of me that I could show him my love and devotion and worship? All of that is involved in knowledge. I need to know God. I need to know about God. I need to know what it is that God has done for me so that my life can respond in worship and love because of what I know about God and his salvation in Christ. And yet there's the basic principle that it's love that builds up, knowledge directing love rightly. So there's a dangerous there's a danger here among these Christians who knew that those things really don't matter. I can do what I want. The danger there is a reckless overconfidence concerning spiritual entities like idols. There's a reckless overconfidence, but there's also a careless indifference. How is my exercising my right going to affect the spiritual progress of others? Verse 7. He begins to answer that. However, not all possess this knowledge. Not all are as fully convinced that there is no God but one. Not all possess that knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as if it was really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to also eat? Will he not be encouraged, I lost my place, to eat food offered to idols, verse 10, and now verse 11. And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother, wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I cause my brother to stumble. You see, the principle there is if something I do is going to cause my brother or sister in Christ to stumble concerning their own faith, if I'm going to lead them into sin because they're following my example, but they're not following it out of the same faith that I have, the same confidence that I have, 
And his example here is, okay, idols were never a thing for you. Maybe, you, maybe this is a person that grew up in a good Jewish family, knew there was no such thing as idols. Idols were, were, were nothing. They were wood and stone. But, um, so now they're free to eat the meat from the idol temple, but, but, the, uh, but somebody else who grew up going to the temple, now going back there and participating there again, to them, it seems like they're going back into idolatry. They're, they're walking old and familiar paths that they should be staying away from because they turn from idols to serve the true and living God. And yet now as they see you not concerned at all about that, not bothered by that at all, then it's easy for them to be drawn back into it again. Can I give you a, a non-spiritual but parallel example? Um, goes back to the table, wine, or, or rather goes back to the title, wine. Is it okay for a Christian to eat, or, or rather to drink wine? Eat meat, drink wine. They seem to go together. But is that okay? Can I do that? You cannot find a, a place in, in the scripture that tells me not to drink wine. You, this I know, wine is not forbidden. In fact, we know Jesus' first miracle. You know, people who want to debate this issue with you and they want to argue, well, Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine at a wedding feast for celebration, the celebration of the fullness and the goodness of, of, of life. And wine is used in that way in celebration in the Old Testament. The fullness of life, the richness, good things in life. And yet, we know also that we are, we are told in Scripture not to be drunk with wine but to be filled with the Spirit. You can drink wine, but don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And also, Scripture has a lot to say about, um, has a lot to say about strong drink. And strong drink in the Scripture would equate to our liquor, our liquor, hard alcohol. So you can get away with that Chardonnay, you can get away with that Pinot Noir, you're going to have a little trouble with Jack or Grey Goose, or you know, you're going to have a little more trouble getting that one by me. Just if we're, going to, if we're going to stay with what the Bible says. So there are some things that we know, but going back to that wine again. Okay, so do I have a right? Then it's okay for me to have a glass of wine. Well, I guess it is. It doesn't say not to. Paul told Timothy, don't drink only water, drink a little wine. That was actually, the alcohol was to kill the bugs in the water at Ephesus. It's another story, but okay, Paul tells Timothy that. Hard to make a case to stay completely away from wine. And yet, what if I have a friend who's an alcoholic? Can my liberty, when he, when he comes to my house and opens my fridge and sees there a, a few bottles or, or sees, or, or sees this, the, the, the cooler section over here filled up with Bud Light, watching my girlish figure, what is that going to convey? Will I, well, you know, I, I look up to, to Bob as my, as my friend, my brother in Christ, and, and uh, as I'm growing, in my, I, I, I guess that's not a problem. That's okay. I mean, if, if, if somebody who's, who, who, who I know is a believer like Bob, if, he, if, if he's okay drinking, then I guess it's not a problem. What am I doing? Am I maybe encouraging this brother or sister who has battled with alcohol and should stay far away from it? Am I potentially encouraging them, especially new in the faith, they haven't sorted out all these aspects of liberty and freedom and yet avoiding license and licentiousness and extreme? Am I perhaps encouraging them to travel back down a trail that they should rightly avoid simply because they are starting to learn the Christian life, in a sense, painting by the numbers? They're, they're starting to learn the Christian life. When you learn the Christian life, 
As you grow in Christ, you start by following others. You start by following in the steps of others who are walking with you, hopefully, and and others that you have looked up to in the faith, and you follow their example. And yet their example could end up being something that is just fine for them, non-problematic for them. God has given them the liberty and the freedom to do, and yet could be a stumbling point. A stumbling, a, a way to fall for somebody who's, whose faith is not as strong. Somebody that has not had the opportunity yet to work through these things and to grasp them and to be able to make a choice, yes or no, out of faith in what God has said. And if their conscience is telling them, that's evil, I lived that life, I know that party life, I lived that life, that's evil, and they've categorized the whole thing as evil. And now you're encouraging them to step back into that direction, unknowingly even. That's where my example can be a stumbling point to another. Now, we talk about a stumbling point or a point of offense. I'm not talking about somebody who's going to be offended or judgmental over what they see you do. The concern in the passage is not somebody who's going to see what you do and disapprove. The concern of the passage is somebody who's going to see what you do and follow the example which would violate their own conscience. Their own conscience is telling them not to, and yet your example is encouraging them. It's been said that Christians who drink socially don't have a close friend who is a recovering alcoholic. Because when you do, when you've entered into that struggle with them, it changes how you... For instance, another example of this, lottery tickets or casinos. Now, we all know that the best place to get the best deal on a buffet dinner is to go to the casino, right? And we want to be good stewards with our money, right? Well, sure we do. And so what we go, and and man, we can pull a number of the casinos, right? Well, they have those cut prices on all that food laid out there so they will get you in. So then they can get you in front of the machines, right? But we're going to fix them. Yeah, we're going to go in and we're going to get a good deal on our dinner. And we're not going to put a quarter in the slot. Nothing. They're not getting anything from us. We're going to win. Yeah, but by so doing, maybe am I encouraging somebody to go along as well who, when they see those machines, or were they enticed back into gambling again, even something innocent like a lottery ticket, actually can, turn, can, can reignite that spiral within them and cause them to go in a direction that, that they cannot recover from. By my freedom, by my liberty, in am I setting an example? Maybe I don't even know who's following in my footsteps. So I'm, I'll willingly give up rights that I could enjoy, but I can also do without. I'll willingly forsake those for the good, for the sake, for the benefit of others. That's the example. That's what he's talking about here. We don't necessarily deal with idols and meat sacrifice to idols. However, you go to the market and there's a little thing on the corner of the label that says halal. Do you know what that means? I don't even know how to spell it. H-A-L-A-A-L, is that right? Something close to that. What it means is this this food, particularly this meat item, has been, has been slaughtered and prepared in such a way that it meets Islamic law requirements. So, a person, is, if, they, if they 
knowingly choose halal meat, are they willingly submitting themselves to the laws and the religion of Islam? Which, by the way, Islam means submission. Now, for you and I who have never been under Islam and have no concept, I, by no way I'm not going to, I don't choose my meat on this or that basis. And yet for somebody who's a Muslim background believer, somebody who's come out of that, if I was living in Lebanon, maybe I would be a whole lot more careful. Maybe I'd be cautious. Maybe if I had good friends, I'd be a whole lot more cautious about what I participated in because to them I might be actually stepping back under Sharia law. I might be submitting again to Islam and all of the implications of that or encouraging them to do so. So it's, it, 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 it's a considering others rather than the freedom that I want to hold on to. I'm not talking about somebody who would judge you because of something you do, offending them. No, I'm not talking about offense in the sense of them being irritated. I'm talking about offense or stumbling in the fact that they might be led into a temptation that they cannot resist. Not somebody who might grumble and frown. I'm talking about somebody who might stumble and drown. Okay? About those who would follow you where they should not. Because you have the liberty, but they do not. You could get across the road. And yet they, if they tried to follow you dashing across the road, they might get hit. That's what we're talking about, okay? Be willing. Be willing to give up my rights. I'm, I, I am going to choose what I do based on, not what I want to do, but I'm going to choose what I do based on what is also good for those around me. What is good for others? I will give up something I could do if doing so is better for my brother or sister in Christ. So that's the principle laid out in chapter 8, and then, then we want to just uh, unpack it a little more in chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 9, Paul says, you've seen this in me. And like I said, a lot of the Christian life is not merely taught. It's not just explained. It's lived. It's picked up by example. And so we must live as an example for one another. We do things. We live out this, this sacrificial Christian life. We live out what it is to follow Jesus so that others can catch it from us. In chapter 9, I'm not going to read through the chapter, but in the first seven verses, Paul says, I'm an apostle. I have the right, like all the other apostles, to be supported by the churches for ministry. First seven verses, he says, I have that right. And, and Scripture clearly so, shows, verses 8 to 14, that apostles, as laborers of the gospel, should be supported in the gospel. Scripture so shows that. And when the Scripture says, don't muzzle the ox when it's treading the grain, Paul says, he's not talking about oxen. He's talking about those who labor in the word of God should also receive benefit from that for the sake of the body as a whole. And yet, Paul says in verse 15, Paul has willingly yielded his right for the sake of others. Look at verse 15 of chapter 9. I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. That boasting that he has provided the gospel to them freely. He supported himself. Or he says, he says elsewhere, I robbed other churches in order to preach the gospel to you freely. Because he didn't want any hindrance in Corinth where there's so many people who were orators for entertainment. Who would gather a crowd and say wonderful things and make it sound good just for the entertainment value of it. And the people would then pay them in appreciation. He said, I didn't want to confuse you. I didn't want the gospel to look anything like that. 
I wanted you to know that this message is God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Not entertainment. Not for me to give a polished speech so that you could applaud and throw me some coins. And so he didn't accept anything. And that was his boast that the gospel came freely without any cost. Because God has done that for us. The gospel is that God freely gave his son for us in our place so that we could have life in him just by believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so Paul desired to live that out. Now, he says, I, 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 I freely gave up that right for your sakes. Verses 19 to 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who were under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. I can't just do whatever I want. I'm accountable to God for what everything I do. But I didn't keep Jewish dietary restrictions or refrain from eating with Gentiles when I was trying to reach, reach Gentiles for the gospel. I laid aside that Jewish law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. To the, to, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some or see the Lord save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. He describes this effort that we are in as a team sport. He says we pull together. We exercise self-discipline. We will deprive ourselves of what we could have for the sake of the gospel because the gospel is a, is a team sport. In, in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run so that you may obtain it. You know what that you is? It's a plural you. We run together, folks. We run together, and just like a family, a family runs together when they cross the street. They cross. Julie and I stopped with four kids. You know why? Because we had four hands between us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Johnson's didn't get the brief. Well, I've I've watched them. I know how they do this. The older kids learned about the hand-holding thing, and now you know who also helps hold the hands, right? Yeah, they got it figured out, and that's what the church is supposed to look like. We look after one another. We will win this race running together, won't we? I'll look out not merely for me. There's too much in America about the strong individualist spirit that looks out for myself. That I will get myself across the line. I will get myself to the finish. And I'll look around and it's just me. And we have lost. Because this is a team sport. This is a team win. What are you doing? What sacrifices are you participating in for the spiritual good and growth of others? Where are you helping for the whole team to advance together for the glory of Christ? Who around you in this family are you helping to know the Lord more fully, to learn from what you have that they will advance and grow as well? You see, this this practice of self-sacrifice for the good of others, doesn't that so easily move into a lot of other areas because it's the essence of the Christian life? It really is that willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. The third move of this section in chapter 10, Paul says, you know, by the way, those idol temples are not as harmless as you think. I'm going to summarize here, but those idol temples, they're not as harmless as you think. There are spiritual entities behind those idols. There are demonic spirits at work there. 
It's not just a piece of stone. That's a piece of stone. It can do nothing for you, but there is a demonic spirit behind it who craves worship and craves to control and oppress humanity in opposition to God and as a substitute for God. So be careful what rights you insist on. Actually, your consideration, your willing to sacrifice your rights and freedom to safeguard others is actually a safeguard of your own soul as well. His principle of of avoiding the idol temple so that you don't cause somebody else to stumble actually is a safeguard for your own soul concerning those spiritual entities as well. I would take that again. We're not dealing with idol temples today. But could it be that simply my willingness to sacrifice for the sake of others, that willingness to sacrifice for their safeguarding actually is safeguarding my soul. I'm building in a pattern of sacrifice. I'm building in a pattern into my own life and walk with the Lord of giving myself for the sake of others. And that, I would suggest, is the essence of 1 Corinthians. That's what that church needed. That's what any church needs. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you in chapter 2, verse 2. I determined to know nothing among you except this thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh, we want to rush to Jesus Christ glorified and living in the kingdom and having it all and it's going to be wonderful. And if I could just win the lottery, that would be it. No. In this life, we have the opportunity to give, to suffer, to sacrifice to this, for the sake of others. And as we do, where we do, in that willful giving of myself for others, there I learn something of Christ. There's where I will fill out. Let me read the closing verses of chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all, not to your indulgence, but to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not just to make everybody happy, but by, by, by that pleasing everybody in what I do, I'm looking, I'm making my decisions about what I do in an other-centered way. I'm considering others more important than myself. How will this affect them? How might this help them? How might this hinder them? It's not just about me. I do not seek my own advantage, but rather the advantage of many that they may be saved. And he says, he urges the church that in chapter 11, verse 1, which is actually the last verse of chapter, of chapter 10, be followers or imitators of me as I follow Christ. Paul in this, in this passage has said, I'm willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ that others might know him and that I don't cause them instead to stumble in their faith. By his willing to sacrifice what he could enjoy for the sake of others, he is following in the steps of Christ, who was willing to sacrifice what he could enjoy for the sake of others. And he says, you follow me as I follow Christ. Let's join in that example. I will give up what I freely could have. It might be, what are you doing for lunch? For lunch today, are you going to grab somebody and say, hey, would you come over or let's go out? I'd like to get to know you better. Find out how you could encourage them. Or is lunch today, this is the time at the end of this week where this is the time for you to get some reflective rest and not be so busy and so pressed. This is the time when you need to step back and reflect and you will be at your better for others around you as well because you have had some time to reflect and rest in the Lord yourself. 
So I'm not going to tell you what to do for lunch this week or next. But let's do that. Not based on our own indulgence, our own fun with others, or our own escaping from others, but let's do it for the sake of our Lord and his church and that more will be added to it, all right? And whatever we do, let's glorify God, giving of ourselves, following Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that there have been those who have gone before us. Thank you for examples even this morning, but Lord, especially those who have gone before us who have showed us something about what it is to live for Christ in giving of ourselves for others. Lord, would you make us strong in that same way would you would you within our body lord those who are strong would look around them and and gather others in and bring them along not just leave them to themselves to get across the street on their own but father would you would you cause us to look for a hand that we could grab hold of and walk with for your sake and for your glory we ask this in jesus name amen